Go Ask Alice is a show intended for adult audiences because adults want to learn too. Sometimes we cover sensitive material, so please take care of yourselves and listener discretion is advised. Now on to the show. Hello, internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I'm a trombone champion. You better believe it. <laughs> oh, the game! Did it come the out? The game, yeah. Oh, so exciting. Of I love that did. for you. Oh, it's good. It's a great game. Uh, with me is... Eugene. You can go, oh, my you turn. Can go in the middle. Uh, I, it's Gene. I'm Gene. And today I accused my doctor of gaslighting me. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Can we hear that story afterwards? Absolutely. He and was I'm not so happy. sorry. Oh, God, that sucks. Um, And I'm Sarah, and I can unequivocally say I do not think UFOs are aliens. Fight me. Wow. You're going to get a lot of people fighting you. I've been asked a lot this week, are UFOs aliens? And I'm like, no, that's not the scary thing people should be worried. Anyway, anyway. (laughs) They could be. (laughs) Uh, anyway, this is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and we try to find the best factoids in the universe of Wikipedia to present all of you. Each week we start on a random Wikipedia page and we dabble through all of the different pages until we find something that we think is metrically interesting. If we read it and are like, hell yeah, we got to share it with all of you, we'll write it up and we will present it. What page did we start on this week? The wheel. Wheel, yeah, that's wheel. The wheel. Um, And I can't remember, did we get very far? Drew, where did you end up? I did not get far at all because you just add another wheel to what we got and you got two wheels, it's bicycles. Bicycles. I ended up on bicycles. Excellent. And Eugene, did you end up on an automotive motor transport? Not even close. Um, I ended up on Roman bathhouses. Wow. <laughs> From wheel. All right. <laughs> From... I, I cannot backtrack and tell you how I got there. Sorry. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I kind of went down a similar path to Jean in the ancient, wonderful places, and I ended up in the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which I really oh, cool. only know from the Lady Gaga song. Babylon. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so, so I did a lot of research. <laughs> I'm so excited for this topic. Uh, before we dive in though, we've got question of the week. And this week's question is when you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, does the peanut butter go on the top slice of bread or the bottom slice of bread? Jean. There is only one correct answer and it's the bottom slice of bread. I agree, but I'm not going to single out Drew if he doesn't agree, because he's looking a little guilty. I, I do not agree. I do not agree. I think it goes on top, because I think that you get a better flavor from the jelly when you bite into it. It, like, hits your tongue first, and then you get the peanut butter, because I think peanut butter mars the whole jelly flavor. I think you get too much peanut butter if you bite into direct top peanut butter. Uh, this sounds crazy. I've sound like that, a fucking madman. No, this is very interesting. Your your reason so like behind you get it. you oh, get okay. so much more pure jelly flavor from it by before biting into jelly first hits. before peanut butter hits, and then it's just like it washes out as peanut butter. I I think that's that's why I like it. I think you could could be correct. I never thought about that. I was gonna say I must just eat like a maniac because I don't even consider like <laughs> what comes first i just shove it in my mouth and i'm like <laughs> yes too. that blend yes, peanut butter yes <laughs> my peanut butter goes on the bottom structurally because it's got more girth to it like solidity what, what's the word density Girl. so i feel density, like that's the one dense things should go on the bottom <laughs> right actually yeah because then if you drop it you know it's just gonna spin out of control not that you should be dropping <laughs> your family genuinely <laughs> But I think this is similar reason why I do it. I think of heavy. I put heavy on the bottom. Same as like when you're making a burger, heavy goes on the bottom. Like the meat or the the fake meat. You got it. Okay. Well, if you would like to disagree or agree with any of us, you can find us on our social media at GoAskGalsPod on Twitter or GoAskGalsPodcast on Instagram and leave us your opinions. We will not judge you either way. We promise. Won't we, Jean? No judgment. Uh, I He's can't like, make any promises personally. I cannot promise, <laughs> <laughs> promise anything. <laughs> well, if you want to be harassed, come and join us. We'll have a good time. <laughs> yes. That's more likely to happen. So, should we do like a historical sandwich? 
with the wheel, mm. uh, with not wheel, with bicycle in the middle. In the middle? Okay. What do you want to start out with then? Ooh, I go first. Maybe because in my head I see like a little adventure, like we're at the bathhouse, we do our thing. And then we take the bike. We, we take do our, our bike. We to, take our bike. We go to the garden. <laughs> yeah, it's like a whole day. I like that. Okay. I like that. It's a day trip. Yeah, exactly. This, this is exciting. <laughs> Close your eyes and imagine yourself on a bicycle approaching the bathhouse. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my intro. Jeans <laughs> <laughs> like that's no. That was no. it. All right, so we can just jump right in. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. Roman bathhouses, also known as Thermae and Balneae, or Thermae and Balnei. Who knows? Google couldn't translate correctly or pronounce it for me, so I'm going to go with Thermae and Balneae. As you can imagine, these are various bathing facilities that were scattered all over Rome. Um, A Thermae is typically a larger imperial bath complex, whereas a Balneae, Balneae, is a smaller scale public facility where like rich people can go, but they'll commingle with poor people, and that's okay. Um, so basically, with the, with the oh, first one, more rich people only. Yeah, big and rich. Okay. Um, big and usually, rich. usually poor people are not allowed into those because they're kind of like privately owned or like in right. palaces and stuff like that, and no peasants allowed. But I think the best modern comparison is like a country club versus a public pool. Oh, you that's think, an oh, excellent okay, comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been in a country club. Me neither. My sister has. They sound oh. wonderful. Not for us poor peasants. <laughs> One day. <laughs> One day. That's the dream. Um, so there were around 952 unique bathhouses that existed by 354 AD. And that's only the ones that we know of. There might have been more that got lost to time and ruin. But the point is, is that Romans loved loved their baths it was like all they cared about i mean that's not true but it was an, it was an integral part of their life you could say it's i appreciate all they cared about. i appreciate that they liked being like mega clean and sparkly yeah well i guess that was part of it there were some other things we'll get into it um, was this more like the the adventures that happened in the bathhouse yeah there you go now you're on it so Almost every single town and city within the Roman Empire had at least one bathhouse. It was like weird if a, if a town or city didn't have at least one. And they were actually so important that Romans would build them at like war campaign sites for their soldiers as they were out in war because they couldn't, oh, they couldn't okay. go back home. So that's how important these were, like intense. Typically, they were built with millions of fireproof terracotta bricks and finished with fine mosaic floors, marble-covered walls, and decorative statues throughout. They were very fancy. Even the poor ones, like the Balnier, were um, adorned however they could be, just because, you know, you wanted to go to a nice place, have a good time, relax, enjoy your surroundings. Um, They were usually supplied with fresh water via natural hot springs or aqueducts, as we know the Romans loved their aqueducts. They did. Um, They tip. Yeah, they typically they opened around. They were. There's. Oh my god! Wait, wait till we get into this. Okay. There was some crazy <laughs> shit I discovered. Bathhouses that were public were usually open around lunchtime and then closed around dusk. You could go in, rich or poor, again into these public bathhouses for as little as two denarii a person, and they were usually free during the holidays because you know you gotta make the people happy or they'll revolt. Uh, they were located as well in wealthy private villas, townhouses called domuses, and forts for the soldiers. One of the most, oh my god, oh my god, I always forget. Bibness, I'm gonna post eight or nine images, I don't know, incoming. So oh, wow. Of, yeah, one of the most famous bathhouses comes from aptly named Bath, Somerset, England. Yes. Yes, I'm sure most people know about this one. Um, It is the second image I posted with the funky green water. (laughs) Um, It's a super popular um, tourist attraction, and it's got an active hot spring still. However, you don't want to go into that water because it's full of live active bacteria related to meningitis, which can kill you. I was going to say, it just looks like a meningitis cesspool in there. (laughs) It totally is. And like, they literally have to like close it down and make sure no one goes in there because like someone literally swam around and then died from a brain infection. Oh my God. That is my worst fear. Yes. (laughs) It's bad. No no brain infections, please. Mm -mm. And then we have another famous site, which I never knew about this. I knew about the Bath England, but this is freaking cool it's called the thermi thermi of caracalla in rome italy 
and I have three images. One is a layout, one is the ruins, and one is a like artistic rendition of what it used to look like. Holy crap, that's massive. It is. Massive is the correct word for it because this complex covered 26 acres of land that Jeez. was that was all plowed and made even for it specifically. It featured pretty much anything you can imagine and then some. It also included a second partial floor and a subterranean floor. This is how big it was. Holy um, moly. If you that's can see amazing. in the, in that second picture of the ruins, see how tiny those people are? There's people in that picture. Like, wow. It's crazy big. Um, unfortunately, this place fell into ruin around the 530s, where like the ancient Roman Empire was falling apart and all that sad stuff was happening. I think I read recently the 536 was literally the worst year ever to be alive. <laughs> but again, it's colossal ruins still stand to get today, giving you an idea of like how just huge this place was so like again they took their baths extremely seriously obviously bathhouses were used for bathing can i get any ideas of what else they were used for from the two of you a little uh hanky panky hanky panky what does that mean do you not have that expression in the u.s it's like a little se- little sexy time oh sexy time okay i thought that's what that meant i was like hmm is this <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it could be, but I believe that was frowned upon <laughs> on oh, the ground. Okay, okay. Uh, we'll sort of get into that. Drew, any ideas? Hmm. I'm gonna say drinking. Lots of drinking. Yeah, yeah. You could, you could, you could. Okay, so so we got so we got some close ones. Um, oh, gossip. Yes, that's gossip the main center? one. Socializing, yes. Because the bath process was long and arduous, so people would be, like, they wouldn't want to just sit there and awkwardly just stare at each other. So it would be a great time to socialize for, uh, (laughs) friends would catch up with each other, they'd meet associates, clients and patrons would talk about business, people would make dinner party plans and stuff like that. It was like, you'd go to the bathhouse to chat while doing your, you know, cleaning, bathing, whatever thing. Yeah, they 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 were also used for healing, um, things like joint pain, muscle aches, hangovers. You do want to go to the bathhouse for a hangover. Oh, absolutely. Ooh. Entertainment. There would sometimes be musical performances and games in the bigger thermi, like imperial complexes and whatnot. A big thing that I didn't know about was exercise. A lot of people would go to exercise in these bathhouses. There'd be weightlifting, cardio, like a whole sports area where people could like wrestle and throw discus. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I, th- I was thinking like water aerobics. I'm sure they had that too in one of the pools. Um, yeah, they had like all these extra amenities that I'll get into. And then the other three are eating, reading, and relaxing. It but is like a country club. It is. It's totally like an ancient Roman country club, which is crazy because yeah, I never thought of it that way. Nudity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's also interesting, I, I couldn't definitively find online if people were just full-blown nude or if they wore robes or just like a loincloth. There was mixed information. I think it's just like some allowed it and some didn't is what I got from it. Um, so some of the larger and luxurious bathhouses also contained restaurants, entire restaurants, game rooms, snack bars, open air swimming pools, outdoor gardens, lecture halls, and even libraries. Wow, I would love to give a lecture a lecture in a bathhouse doesn't that sound fucking cool you like go relax steam yourself and be like oh my go god listen to this oh. latest philosopher i'd be so much fun i was born in the wrong millennia i always say that about myself except i want to go into the future although maybe not going with how things are going right now yeah i give out <laughs> 10 years we'll see what happens <laughs> Um, so we'll get, I, we'll jump into layout and features because this was like the, the the I don't know if I want to say the most interesting but definitely you want you want to know like the standard bathhouse of ancient times. So we start well I guess we start with the dressing room but the the three core principal rooms are the tepidarium, the caldarium, and the frigidarium. And I think their names kind of give them away. One's but... gonna be hot. One's gonna be cold. And one's gonna be tepid, perhaps. What's tep? Like just right? Like not like warm room temperature? Yeah. Okay. So okay. we'll start with the tepidarium. It's a warm and highly ornamented room. I have a picture of it. It's right after that artistic rendering. It's like a picture of a room, so it's kind oh, of dilapidated. But you beautiful. can see marble walls, a whole ceiling of like paintings. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So highly ornamented, sometimes with a tepid pool, sometimes not. Uh, And this provided a pleasant feeling of constant radiant heat from the walls and flooring. This is fucking awesome. If you can scroll down two images to all those little blocks on the floor, do you see them? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is cool. So the tepidarium and the caldarium, they were indirectly heated by a furnace or boiler that sent hot air flowing under a raised floor called the hypocost, which is that. Imagine all those little oh. blocks, but with the floor on top of it. Oh my God. Like a marble God, floor. Like yes. Modern day floor heating. Yes. It's so cool. And this would allow for open, even circulation all throughout the room. Genius. You'd walk in and your feet would be warm. The walls would be hollow and the air would rise through that. And the whole room would just be warm all around. So I'm cool. So freaking smart. So cool. I can't. I can't. So the tepidarium uh, was usually used uh, as a like the first primary primary room you enter, and this is where you would begin the sweating and anointing process. And if anyone doesn't know, anointing is just ba- basically covering yourself in fancy oils. And it would also be the last room you would visit like before. A <laughs> I, I suppose that's one way to put it. Human <laughs> turkey. Human turkey. I mean, yeah, you are going into the hot room next. Oh my god, imagine the comedy that was happening of people slipping over their own body oil. I'm sure it happened. I didn't read about it, but I'm sure it happened. Romans loved their oils. They loved lathering themselves up. Um, so yeah, you'd, you'd start sweating, you'd get all oily, and then you'd go to the caldarium, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, like the caldera of a volcano, nice and hot. Mm-hmm. Um so this was a hot and steamy room up to 55 degrees Celsius or 131 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty hot. Wow. I would say pretty hot. borderline unbearable. That's very hot. That's like a sauna. <laughs> yes. Um, this would almost always include a hot water pool, which would be directly heated by the furnace and boiler, the same one that would indirectly heat the further tepidarium. It also usually contained a basin of cool water near the entrance slash exit so that people could pour over their heads if they started to overheat. And in this room, slaves would rub their masters with even more oil and then scrape them clean with this curved metal thing called a strigil. Because they would like, they would like get all oiled up, get all sweaty, and then this tool would just like scrape all the gunk and sweat off. That's how they cleaned Ew. themselves back then. Yeah, kind of gross. For that. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> we have the third principal room, which is the frigidarium, which is, you can imagine, like a refrigerator. It's a large, cool room, often the heart of the Roman bathhouse, because some people would just skip the caldarium altogether and just want to go swim around in the cold room and socialize. But yeah, often the heart of the Roman Empire, and you'd use it to cool off, swim around, have a good time. But it also was used to reinvigorate oneself with energy, because, you know, once you take a cold plunge, you're like, but it wakes you up. Yeah. Yeah. And it would also end the sweating process by closing your pores and cooling your body temperature down to like, you know, non-sweating mode. So a typical visit would be, you'd come in, you'd get undressed in the dressing room, you'd go to the tepidarium, hang out, get oiled up, get nice and warm, get ready for it, go into the caldarium, soak, sweat, hyperventilate, (laughs) go (laughs) back to the tepidarium to like balance out, Go to the frigidarium, cool off, get reinvigorated, go back to the tepidarium again to balance out, and then you would either... hopping between like a hot tub and a cold pool in snow. Absolutely. This is amazing. And there's like science that proves that like this is a very effective method for like healing muscle strain or pains and like dealing with so many ailments. And they, and also they know about your, it. your fight and flight response, like, which is triggered by your interbeat interval of your heart rate. So like if someone's having a panic attack, you can reset or you can try reset your, your, I think it's called the sympath- sympathetic nervous oh, system. Oh, yeah, sympathetic But yeah, you can try reset it with ice or hot and, and your That's body so cool. goes into it. It's like, oop. I got a got a live mode, which is pretty neat. I love this podcast. God. I learned so much. <laughs> I want to go. I want to just be these people jumping between pools and living their I best, know. relaxing lives. But uh, yeah, you'd you'd get dressed after that and either leave the complex or move on to amenities like have a nice stroll f- through a garden and go peruse the library or go sit and listen to one of the lectures by like the new trendy philosopher. Sounds nuts. Sounds nuts. It is nuts. <laughs> Other rooms included, obviously, the changing rooms, which we talked about, sports and exercise rooms, the latrines, which I posted in the spoilers chat, that fancy marble toilet. Oh, yes. Fancy marble toilet. Apparently, most of these had constant flowing water. So, like, you didn't even need to flush. You just did your business and moved on. And this is a little side note, but do any of you know what a xylospongium is? No. Okay, it is simply a stick with a sponge tied to the end of it. And do you know what people did with the xylospongium? <laughs> is it like a is it like a loofah? It is like a loofah for your butthole. Oh. 
Oh my god. Do you guys remember the infomercial from years ago for the the shiny hiney? Oh, the shiny hiney, yes. The infomercial where it was like a little thing on a stick that you were meant to clean your butt with. People don't change. It's amazing. Nothing nothing changes. (laughs) Millennia later, people don't change. We're still using xylospongiums. (laughs) And I, I will give a trigger warning. This is about suicide. So if you if you want to skip ahead, um, there are there is a story like a, rec- a record of this happening when in the Colosseum because the Colosseum was brutal. Either it was a Germanic gladiator or it was a Christian martyr who didn't want to like go up and get eaten by like live like animals alive by animals. So he took he took a xylospongium and shoved it down his throat and killed himself. Can you imagine? Wow. What an odd That animal. is better than being mauled by animals for the entertainment of Romans. I would rather be mauled. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Trigger warning's wow. over. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I figured I'd throw that in there because I'm like, no one's ever going to bring this up randomly. I got to do it now during the latrines. <laughs> and people have to know. People have to know. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, some other rooms included separate cold water bath plunges, which sounds great now because I, I don't know why I'm so hot. Massage rooms, which also sounds great. Superheated, dry, and sweating rooms hotter than the caldarium, which hotter than 55 degrees Celsius is crazy to me. I feel like you could die. Right? Uh, and then outside sometimes, like especially in that big one, the the Thema of Caracalla, they had the shops set up so you could shop around there and also shrines sometimes for the for the nice. bigger ones. Depending on the size of the bath bathhouse or the customs of each individual site, women had either their own separate facilities or were only allowed to participate at earlier parts of the day, making way for men in the early afternoon. Because back then women were, you know, not seen as equals in any shape, way, or form. We're heading back in that direction, though. Oh my god, we are. There are sparse records of women and men bathing together, and I don't know if this was sexy time or just bathing, but it was definitely looked down upon in pretty much all Roman society. That was a no-no. But no, that is, it is so bizarre that it was like, no, we're going to have boys' time. Boys' time only in the baths. Absolutely. And women got like two to three hours, and boys got like all the rest until dusk sexism but with that we can jump into issues and controversies related to roman bathhouses which is probably my favorite thing yeah so back to hanky panky prostitutes often worked really really close to bathhouses for obvious reasons (laughs) yes this led to various political scandals and also the spread of stis who would imagine Um, (laughs) who could have seen it coming (laughs) yes thieves and pickpockets also love to hang around bathhouses especially the wealthier ones because hello people are undressing leaving the goods behind and it's literally the first thing you walk into is the dressing room so like if there, there weren't guards or if a guard could be distracted your shit's gone another issue was these places weren't always well maintained some got kinda grody Sometimes water wasn't renewed regularly, leading to the buildup of oils, dirt, and even human excrement. Uh, yeah, I see your face, Sarah. (laughs) Ugh, it just... As I'm sure you can picture, this led to the insane amount of bacteria spreading and causing even further diseases. There's actually records of PSAs, public service announcements, that suggested you do not... No matter what, go into a bathhouse with an open wound unless you want to risk developing gangrene and losing a limb. Oh my god. So they knew. God. They, knew. they knew. They knew. They knew. They knew. Good on them for knowing. <laughs> what was going on. But they didn't care because <laughs> baths were an integral part of life. You can't not. I wonder if they had like like a bath alternative, like a shower. That I don't know. I didn't see anything about showers. I'm sure they did, but I, I, don't, know, I don't know if they ever caught on. Yeah. Romans were crazy inventors. We love the Romans. Another thing of controversy was natural hot spring baths were often used as a place to ask Sulis Minerva, the goddess of the spring, to curse people. And so sometimes they would like dig up these ruins and find all these little lead bits with scribblings all over them. (gasps) And so they- Curse tablets! It's like curse tablets, curse notes. (laughs) <laughs> yes so so people would literally scribble their the name of someone they hated or wanted vengeance on pray to Silas minerva and toss it into the hot spring amazing amazing and, uh, hope for in the best the, 
in the Curse Tablets episode, I touched on this, but I don't know if Jean has heard this story, but my nan does like a similar thing now. If anyone wrongs her, she writes their name on a piece of paper and sticks it in the freezer to freeze them out of her mind or life. Hell yeah. I love and every time that. I hear of a <laughs> yeah. curse tablet or a curse note, I just think of, I think of my nan. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Nan cursing people. Uh, and then lastly, as a controversy, murder? What? Murder? <laughs> um, so I, I'm sure there are more, but the one that kept popping up when I was looking for murders in Roman bathhouses was for a dude named Lucius Macedo, who was known as a very cruel and arrogant Roman praetor. He, funny enough, was actually raised... Either his father was a slave or he was a slave, but then he became a praetor by proving himself. But... He treated his slaves like garbage, and he was attacked by them in his private villa bathhouse. And this quote comes from Pliny the Younger in one of his letters. Pliny again. Hey. Hey. Um, and this quote goes, He was taking a bath in his house at Formiae when suddenly he found himself surrounded. One slave seized him by the throat while the other struck his face and hit him in the chest and stomach. And, shocking to say, in his private parts... <laughs> when they th- when they thought he was dead, they threw him on the hot pavement to make sure he was not still alive. Sucks for them because he still was alive, and he basically crawled back to help uh, to get help. And he I ended up identifying a whole bunch of them, and of course they got executed. No shocker there. But then he did end up succumbing to his injury shortly after. So he did okay. ultimately die, but not before killing all of the slaves so not, like, or most of the slaves. Karma kinda kinda played out. Karma kinda, not yeah. Quite. I feel like murders in Roman bathhouses or bathhouses in general is more of like a fictional story slash video game thing. Because I've seen it happen and heard about it happen yeah. so much, but I couldn't find real historical records beyond this one. So I'm just basically going to wrap up and say Roman ha- bathhouses were so popular and beautiful that many modern spas, public transportation stations, and various other facilities across the world today still copy and mimic their aesthetic. Um, which, I mean, looking at these pictures that I posted, hell Yeah. Fucking awesome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's wow. what I end on today. Wow. Good work, Jean. Yes, thank you. That was a fun adventure. Wow. I'm just, I'm just Drew in speeches, awe of these just thinking, thinking <laughs> about all the baths he could have taken back in the day. I could have taken all these baths, and now I just shower all the time. Like, come on. So what's, what's I do have, like, a confession. I actually mm-hmm. hate baths, like actual baths where you're in, you know, our tiny little... I, I almost never take them myself. Steamy. Uh, I'd rather not. But the idea of a bathhouse sounds more fun, I think. Correct. Because it's like chatting. an experience and it's an like adventure. A hot tub. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. better. I like it. I like it indeed. Shall we jump on our bike and go for a little pedal? Away from the bathhouse? Yeah, so uh, this week I ended up on the, the Wikipedia page for bicycles, uh, which I specifically landed on because I really love to ride my bike a lot like a ton um and i feel like that kind of makes me an asshole and what? i'll explain why, why. <laughs> i will explain why this makes me an asshole i'm so confused i i know it's very confusing just wait so um just to, i have to i have to center myself for to describe what bike biking makes me feel um basically i feel when you're on a bike it's like a completely different relationship with the road that you're riding on and you're so much more in touch with every single aspect of the road and you're like every single hill you feel, every single downhill you feel, every like curve. It's it's like so completely different from riding in like a car or something where you're just so much more in touch with every aspect. And I feel like because when you're in a car, you're just kind of like going down and, and you're just driving and, and like maybe you'll dodge a pothole. Like that's your your big thing. Like there's no real connection to the road. While when you're on a bike, it's just so much more different than that. And it's just like you're just so connected to it and i feel like that's that's such a cool aspect of riding a bike is just that just that connection you get with with the road you're on and i really hope this is not just like a me thing where like i'm the only one who feels this way <laughs> no no true sure I, I am i am no longer confused and you are not an asshole because i used to ride okay. like all the time as a kid after school just just for the sake of riding and i know exactly what you're talking about and it is amazing yeah, right? It feels so awesome when you're on the road and you're just like, you're just riding on it and every little like curve you feel, it's so cool. And that's, okay, I'm glad I'm not an asshole because I was I'm just not, like, I, I was I writing this out and anymore. describing it. Oh, you yeah, don't, don't ride your bike anymore? I, you I don't, but I, I so wish I could because 
I miss that shit. I miss it. Yeah, it's it's like it's freedom. It's like freedom incarnate. You're just you're riding on, on. It's just so it's so freeing and so great. But I'm glad I'm not an asshole because I was writing this out and describing it, and I was just like, I feel like an asshole writing this out. But I'm glad I'm not. So. No, that was that was good. That that was very colorful. A colorful description, and I loved it. I I appreciate that. Um, as I said, I love my bike, so I really had to stop on this page because I really wanted to know, as I always do for some reason, I really wanted to know the history behind it because I just I thought bikes are so cool. How did we get here? Like, how did we get to this modern like invention of a bike? And and that was that's where I really kind of like I dug into. Know, and I want to know how quickly it came after the invention of the wheel. So the invention of the wheel happened forever ago, and we're talking like eighteen, like the eighteen hundreds, as to when a bike was made. So it's it's very it's it's well we need the, so we need recent. a lot of different things. Is this right? the, the the two wheel bike or like a trike or is this uh, like a the, big wheeled bike? Well, you mean we'll get into all of those. <laughs> that's that's like that's the history of the bike right there. You just got it. Okay. Um, I thought they were older. So, no, they're really not. I guess the modern concept of a bicycle, maybe sticking to, but, but here, okay, let me start out. So the first, the first real thing that we could consider a bicycle um, was called the dandy horse or the, as the Germans would say, the Luftmaschine, which is the running machine, okay. um, where basically it was two wheels attached to like a, not really like a plank. I don't know how to describe it. it it's more of like a scooter type of thing where you'd sit on it and push with your feet. There were no pedals to it. It was just like a scooter almost. And it, you would, um, there was no real like drive to it. It was just like your legs were pushing it. And it would get you from point A to point B, but it wasn't um. really a, a bike in the sense of a bike. Oh, sorry, I completely forgot to mention dates. So this was first shown in Mannheim in 1817 and in Paris in 1818. And basically the rider would sit across this wooden frame that was supported by two inline wheels and you would push the vehicle along with your feet and then steer with this front wheel. So it's, it's, it's basically a, a, bigger, a bigger scooter almost. And that was the, the dandy horse. And that was like the real first bike that was, that was first invented. Wait, super and important now question. Start, yes. Did the dandy horse have a horse head in the front? I looked and I didn't see any dandy horses with horse heads on them. Oh, disappointing. Uh, that would be excellent. So the first mechanically propelled two-wheel vehicle uh, that was supposedly built in Scotland in 1839, this claim has been disputed quite a bit. So people think it was first in, like the, the first two-wheeled mechanical bike was, was built in 1839. But as I said, it was disputed and, and people aren't, People aren't sure, um, but funny enough, it was actually um, the first recorded instance of a cycle traffic offense was done in, the, in, in 1842, uh, where an anonymous gentleman riding a velocipede or velocipede, um, which is a, a French bicycle um, of ingenious design was fined for knocking over a little girl. So the first <laughs> offense on a bike happened in 1842. Fucking pedestrians, I swear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Little girl pedestrian. And he was charged five shillings for the offense, which is like about a little bit more than 25 bucks right now. That's not bad. Um, so that's not bad for knocking over a little girl. Like, you know, <laughs> it could be worse. It could be worse. Yeah. But that was, that was just like the theorized first bicycle, but the actualized like mass produced first bicycle really happened in the 1860s where a Frenchman Pierre Michaud and Pierre Lemaine, like two Frenchmen, uh, took the bicycle design in a completely different direction away from like the dandy horse and added the mechanical crank drive with pedals to the enlarged front wheel. So this, this is where we get to more of the, the, the bikes, not the bikes that we know, but the bikes that we kind of, when you think about like an early bicycle, this is kind of what you, what you want to think of. A resemblance. Uh, this is front the, wheel. Yeah, the big, big old front wheel, the penny farthers, uh, the penny farthings, That's sorry. That's um, yes, I have heard. I think yes. the Simpsons did an episode. That about the penny farthing? Yeah, I guess they would. Yeah, that makes sense. It was involved somehow. And I just assumed it was a lot older than the 1800. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um the, the velocipede, or Velocipede, I don't know how to say that. Velociped? I think Velociped. I want to say that. Was rod-driven, and that was invented by a Scotsman, Thomas McCall, in 1869. And so that was like the first real, real bike. It didn't have any gears, or it didn't have any um, 
like it, it the tires weren't like inflatable tires or anything like that it was just basically uh, pedals stuck to a wheel that you could kind of push around a little bit and that was uh that was the french velocipede which was the wood and iron developed or sorry it was made from wood and iron uh and that was developed into the penny farthing which i didn't have exact dates on the penny farthing but uh, that was that was kind of the progression of the bikes where it went from the Velocipede to the Penny Farthing. Um, and the Penny Farthing is actually historically known as the Ordinary Bike, which is oh. very funny because at the time, there were no Hardly. other types of bicycles. <laughs> it was just like... Oh, well, just, I guess that makes sense, yeah, in hindsight. The, it's the Ordinary Bike, um, I guess compared to, to like a modern bike, but... Um, it's just very funny that at the time there were no other bicycles, so how could it be ordinary if there's nothing <laughs> like it? Uh, it's it's just funny to me. <laughs> um, so the, the penny farthing featured a tubular steel frame on which were mounted um, wire spoke wheels with solid rubber tires. So it didn't have an inflatable rubber tire. It had a very solid rubber tire. So it was not not comfortable to ride on. This like This was not a fun thing to ride on. Like, I, I can't imagine going a few miles with this thing. My um, butt and thighs hurt thinking about how hard it would have been to ride on it and, like, every bump you would have felt. And, like, my oh, back yeah, is absolutely. hurting thinking about it Solid now, rubber wheels on a mm -mm. long-ass seat. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. And these bikes were even difficult to ride because, you know, the seat height was so... You were very, very high in your seat height, and you also had very poor weight distribution. Yeah. And so it was... You were prone to topple over quite a bit. And so... Yeah, imagine falling off like a metal bike that you're sitting really high on and just like <laughs> toppling over. I'm amazed that um, they took off. That someone yeah, right. Just veto it and say so. No be like, no, nah, no, nah, not this. <laughs> I don't like this. Um, so this actually led to what's called the dwarf ordinary, which addressed some of the faults of the penny farthing by reducing the front wheel diameter, so it got had much smaller wheels. Um, and setting the seat further back that allowed for better weight distribution. So it wasn't so top heavy and didn't tip over so much and it had much smaller diameter wheels. And the, the, the problem with this was um, with having such a big wheel that you were pedaling, you didn't really need gears, but having smaller wheels, you actually need gears because you, I mean, the bigger wheel, you probably also needed gears, but this is when they added gearing to it. So instead of just having one gear fits all, you'd be able to actually change gears and say, I want to go faster. I want to go slower. You know, it's like uphill, downhill. You'd be able to change uh, and more effectively use your pedal power instead of simply having pedal that one power. gear. Pedal Would power. Would they have yeah. to manually change the gear as in like a move the... The, um, I don't know. I would assume so. The, the chain, chain, like move the chain <laughs> yeah. up to. Well, where we, they we're not even we're, we're not even on chains yet. Those don't exist yet. We're not. We don't have a chain drive yet. I I think because you're we're talking about like the penny farthing where your pedals are directly attached to the wheel, basically. Oh shit! I see. Yeah, we haven't we haven't hit gear driven or not gear driven. We haven't hit like chain driven gears yet. We're we're still before that, so I don't I don't know exactly how shifting worked back Maybe then. But pedal. I would assume I don't know. I guess it, I guess it would be like you'd move your pedals or or like you'd shift where your pedals were. I don't know. I don't know how it would work. I'll have to look into that more. I'll have to think about that. Sorcery. That's how she's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> the the main problem was having. By having the the drive be your steering with the front wheel and you're also pedaling on the front wheel, whenever you'd crank with your right foot, it would crank your 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 handlebars to the right and then to the left and right. So you're basically fighting your your pedaling the entire time by having the the um, the the wheel like your your pedals connected to your to what you were using to steer. So that that was a key problem with the dwarf ordinary where you were just basically going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, this was actually solved by a few Englishmen. So J.K. Starley and J.H. Lawson introduced, this is where we get to the chain drive that actually allows you to drive the back wheel versus you know driving the front wheel. Uh, so this was originally invented for the unsuccessful uh, bikelet of the Englishman, Henry Lawson. So he first invented this for that bikelet, but that just didn't work. It just didn't take off. But then that became very successful for bikes just in general. You, you have your chain drive connected to the frame-mounted cranks on the rear wheel. So instead of 
pushing from the front wheel and also steering from the front wheel. Now you have the back wheel actually, ooh, just smacked my mic. Uh, <laughs> now you have the back wheel actually driving. So the, the models that involved the chain crank were known as safety bicycles. They were known as dwarf safeties or upright bicycles. So that's what we think of uh, when we think of an actual bicycle is, is we, that'd be called an upright bicycle. And that was for the lower seat height and better height and better weight distribution. When you think of a, a bike, you could actually call it a safety bicycle if you wanted to, because it's it's safer and, and easier to use. So uh, bikes at this point ran into another issue where the ride was much rougher with smaller wheels than with the large wheeled variants. So, excuse me, if, if you can imagine having a bigger wheel, you're able to ride over things and not not feel it so much. But when you have like tinier wheels and you hit a rock or something, you're gonna really feel it. So that's where pneumatic tires come in and they were a much needed level of comfort to these initial bikes. Ooh, so pneum- now the year pneumatic. is 1885. Uh, sorry, pneumatic, yes. Is that air pressure? Yeah, like air pressure tires, yeah, 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 like okay. regular, regular air tires, yeah. Like a tube. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm not a scientist over here with your fancy goddamn <laughs> <Sorry>. words. <laughs> Fancy word. <laughs> you fancy goddamn word. <laughs> That's going on a poster. Uh, so now the year is 1885 and J.K. Starley, uh, his bicycle, the Rover, uh, was one of the first recognizable modern bikes. And this was kind of the combination of all the components that I've listed previously from all those other inventors. So the bicycle isn't, isn't like a, a one one person job where it wasn't just like someone made the bicycle. It had like every single invention kind of build it up, built it up, built it up until it was a, a bike that we know. And soon enough, the, the seat tube was added, which created the modern bicycle, you know, the double triangle. I don't know if you've ever heard of a diamond frame, but that's like the, the frame that yes. you see on a, on a regular yep. bicycle. That's, that's the diamond frame was invented that, during this time. And now we get to further inventions, uh, which increased the comfort and usability of bicycles and ushered in the 1890s golden age of bicycles. Wait, I feel like we've talked about a lot of golden ages of things. <laughs> we, I think <laughs> everything show. has a golden age. I think so too. Well, that's, that's funny. Yeah, everything has a golden age. That's I'm surprised the 1890s are... is the golden age for bicycles, yeah, though. For golden anything. age for bikes. <laughs> You're like, yeah, jump the gun there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that should be the title of your segments, Drew. Golden Ages. The Golden Ages. I the like it. You know ages. what? Let's let's go with that. <laughs> I'm gonna make a poster for that too. If you want to <laughs> see these posters, you can join our Patreon. Go ask Alice Pod. Yeah, join us. It's great. It's a great Patreon. We love it. Uh, so in 1888, a Scotsman, uh, John Dunlop. So he introduced I the first practical. Yeah. <laughs> Not personally, obviously. Not personally. <laughs> <laughs> but he introduced the first practical pneumatic tires, uh, which soon became universal aspect of bikes. So yeah, John Dunlop was, I think, was it was it galvanizing? Did he? I think no, he might Vul- have. Vulcanizing. 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 That's the word for it. To God make damn really, fancy really science words. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Did he do vulcanizing? I don't know. But basically, he introduced the, he introduced the first practical pneumatic tires. So that that was super cool. Uh, soon after, the rear freewheel was developed, which enabled riders to coast without having to pedal constantly. So previously, you had to pedal, um, like, even when you were just trying to go down a hill or something, you were still pedaling because the, the, the crank, just oh, how the yeah, crank yeah, worked. Yeah, yeah. I and had one this, of those yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah. It was, that shit's dangerous, let me tell can, you. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine people breaking their feet by stopping and then... Yeah, because yeah, it's, 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 the, the pedals are going to keep on going no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was that traumatizing, Gene. <laughs> it's is really fucking scary. I'm not gonna lie. Like when you're going down like a steep hill and that shit's just spinning, you like literally like have to lift your feet off and be like, oh no, no, God, <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 this is not happening. <laughs> don't don't mangle my legs, please. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, you need you need a a freewheel bike uh, because that allowed you to coast without having to pedal. This refinement led to the uh, 1890s invention of the, the coaster brakes, which are the brakes that, um, you know how you pedal forward on a bike? Well, this allows you to pedal backwards and that causes the brakes, you know, that, that it, it yeah. engages the brake. So that's, that's a coaster brake. That's a good invention. So that's, that's a good invention. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the next invention, which are the derailleur gears and the Bowden cable pull brakes, which are, you know, those classic. I'm just not that classic- into bikes to know what that is the so <laughs> hand grip thingies yeah the hand grip things exactly oh. yeah, yeah, yeah oh yeah, the, yeah. like the Take modern hand grips that that like um 
tightens on the front and back wheel and allows you to stop. That's the little rubber was, stoppers. Yeah, oh. exactly. That was invented in the 1890s. Um, I see. And, I see. And the derailleur gears. Uh, that's that's. Um, oh, I know what that's. You know how you right? Where it scales down like by itself. Yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. It, it allows you to shift um, gears on the back tire and it like clicks over. You know the thing that, that when you like press on your gear shifter on your like on your hand, it just like clicks over. That's yeah. that's a derailleur. Or starts grinding and rips off or, yeah, in some exactly. experiences. <laughs> it actually took a very long time for these to be uh, like adopted by casual riders, but they were definitely invented during this time and were very important. So a funny thing... In the 1870s, many cycling clubs actually flourished uh, and were very, very popular at the time because there are not many cars on the market and the principal mode of transportation was horse-drawn wagons. So instead of having a horse-drawn wagon, you had all these bike clubs that were just like, hey, we can cycle wherever we want because there's no cars. So they were able to just like, you know, ride all over the place and became, this became super popular. And uh, this is when bike production really hit its peak and people just like could not get enough of this new set of inventions where just, they just absolutely loved it. That'd be crazy. So yeah, right. I can imagine myself being like, holy shit, I need one of those. Let me (laughs) smell fortune. Early stage capitalism. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it was. It would have changed people's lives though. Like not everyone could afford a horse and a cart or even to rent one. So that's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I was literally just about to say that. The exact Yay. same thing. It literally changed people's lives because bicycles and horse and buggies were the two mainstays of like p- private transportation just prior to automobiles. And this actually caused like the smoothing of roads in the late 19th century uh, that was stimulated by the widespread advertising production and use of, of bikes and horse-drawn buggies. So that's why our roads are smoother because you know we had bicycles riding on them. Thank God we still have cobble streets in some parts of Melbourne. Oh, they are the worst to drive on and they're even worse to walk on because you just feel like you're a drunk, like, sailor (laughs) trying to walk down the street. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. So so more than 1 billion bicycles have been manufactured worldwide uh, as of the early 21st century, which is super cool. That's a lot of bikes. And bikes, bikes are the most common vehicle out of any kind in the world. So that's super cool. Bikes are bikes are really really everywhere and used by a ton really? of people. Really? So there's more yeah. bikes than there are cars in the world. Yes. That's that's crazy. Why don't I believe yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> that? I'm like that's not possible. I, I mean I guess yeah. Crazy. That's so cool. It's it's super cool. And uh, one thing I really wanted to end off on was bringing up just how important. There's actually a large section in the Wikipedia article about this, just how important the freedom was, especially for women that bicycles provided. It was actually, it was very liberating to to be able to travel basically wherever you wanted, not wherever you wanted, but it made, you know, walking distance was no longer a, a consideration. It was now, what what can I bike to? I can bike somewhere and now I can, you know, have a little bit more freedom outside of the home and and uh, like go to places that are a little further out. And, and I just found that super cool. This is because the late, bikes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go on. I was gonna say, this is the late 1800s you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I'm honestly a little shocked that people didn't find a way to be like, women can't ride bikes. That's, that's immoral. <laughs> That's immoral. I'm no, sure. no. I I'm sure there, there are some there people. Been yeah. Like modesty rules about the skirts and stuff. I think, but I think Lindsay touched a bit on this possibly when she was talking about scandalous fashion, and that there was mm. some like when there was this one trend of the skirts that was so tight you could barely move your feet, and the yeah. idea was to like make oh the hobble skirt. The hobble skirt. The hobble skirt. Yeah. Yes, that's it. And like you could never ride a bike with a hobble skirt. Yeah, you couldn't ride a bike with a hobble skirt. But the idea know, they... was that you were just a lady that was not meant to travel very far, which, mm. fuck off, that's insane. <laughs> I would like to use my legs, please. Please. <laughs> please. <laughs> I would like that's my funny. legs. That's funny. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, can I please use my legs? I don't need yes. fashion to, to restrict my leg movement. But they they did. There was a huge section in the Wikipedia article purely about how empowering it was to a lot of people to just have the freedom of bicycles. Um, I guess it was just like because if you didn't have cars, like you you couldn't. I mean, everything was just walking. So now you could actually you know you know uh, 
a 20 mile bike ride versus a 20 mile walk is a two very different things. You know? oh that's, my God, that's a yeah. long day affair as opposed to like an hour ride. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe a little more than an hour, but like, I guess it depends on who, but like, yeah, I can remember back to my childhood. If I walked across town, it would be like midnight by the time I got to wherever I wanted to be. But if I rode my bike, it was like a 20 minute ride. Exactly. Exactly. I love it's, that you like, awesome. when I look back at my childhood, walk across the city in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Gene. Oh, had a wild funny. childhood <laughs> wild childhood i like yes, it yes he is but uh again there is so much more to this wikipedia article than i could cover because i just i literally just covered the history section they like they had individual sections for each part and each like invention and each pe like the people involved with the invention so if you want to read more about it please feel free it's a it's a great article but yeah that's that's uh that's bikes in a nutshell and i hope everyone appreciates bikes as much as i do very cool I love yeah, the whole right. freedom and liberation aspect of it. Makes me yeah, feel it's good. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, exactly. It does. Yeah, that's amazing. And hopefully we'll move towards like cities like in um, in the Netherlands where it's just bikes only, no cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I don't, I don't live lovely. in a place right now where that would be feasible. Like everything is way too far for me to take a bike. But <laughs> it's like, way too far. I, yeah. I wish I did because I would totally get a bike and just bike everywhere. And it feels dangerous mm -hmm. sometimes, or at least I'm way, way too scared to ride on the road here. On like and a busy highway. Cars really just yeah. don't care. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, that was excellent. Thank you, Drew. No problem. Thank you, Drew. I had a great time with it. We've now arrived to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Hanging oh, wow. Gardens. We, we, we rode our bike over. <laughs> yes. Are you ready to dive in? to talking a dive in i was gonna say maybe hanging because hanging gardens of babylon that was a bad segue are you ready to dive into the hanging gardens of babylon <laughs> head yes. first head first. there we go yeah okay so first of all have you heard of them and kind of like what do you know already in a one sentence i have heard of them from the game called civilization mm -hmm. and they're a world wonder you can build and you get awesome bonuses i think you get a lot of food from them or something like that and happiness oh my god okay that's very cool yeah same for you drew it's literally the exact same thing <laughs> <laughs> literally the exact same thing okay okay amazing so that's that's kind of neat because that will tie back to kind of what what they were for um, with different foods and exotic foods and things like that. Um, but so they were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So we have the modern wonders of the world and we have the ancient wonders of the world. And we've already chatted about in a previous episode, um, the lighthouse of Alexandria, which was in modern day Cairo now towards, um, towards the North of Cairo. And it was, we had the library and we had the lighthouse and there was a whole book on all of these ancient wonders and they were places that humans had built to kind of, you know, marvel at or better themselves in some way. And the Hanging, Hanging Gardens of Babylon were counted as one of them because they were just so spectacular from everything we have in written history. Now, I totally just assumed that this was a real place because we've got evidence for the lighthouse, for the library, for some of the other ancient wonders. Um, but it turns out that maybe it wasn't even real, which is just wild to me because I feel like we learn about it or like through video games or pop culture, we talk about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That's crazy. We're just not really sure. I'm not going to lie. That's very upsetting. <laughs> no, not like very upsetting because like the hanging gardens of babylon at least in civilization are like probably my favorite wonder because i just i like gardens so what can i say <laughs> i like gardens what can i say <laughs> gardens are excellent and i think like we'll get to it but not to bust too many bubbles there were definitely incredible gardens all around babylon but we're not exactly sure what the hanging gardens of babylon reference to or where, mm. so we'll get into it. But like, don't get too depressed. There are definitely beautiful gardens, but maybe it's not. Too late. Maybe not the magical <laughs> ones we think. <laughs> so it has been said that these gardens were a complete, like, an utter remarkable feat of engineering. They had hanging plants and trees, and they were built over multiple stories. So you kind of see this imagery, and I'll pop some photos in the chat. Uh, in a minute, you see this imagery of it kind of like layered where it's almost, if you think of places like Machu Picchu or some of the other ancient agricultural sites where you have layered tiers of where you would plant things, 
kind of that vibe and there's a whole science to why this happened so if you look at like places in Peru like Machu Picchu or some of the other um, ancient sites where they've got these levels it was so they could grow different types of vegetables and fruit in different uh, mini climates so they would build them into hills where you'd get subclimate so some places would be a bit colder and damper some would be a bit drier and hotter um, over just fractions of degrees but it would mean that you could what's the word you could harvest. I forget the word it's like you could optimize you could optimize what you're growing well oh, oh, oh. and I'm mm-hmm. yeah that and I'm not really sure cool. whether the gardens of Babylon were similar but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case where you've got you know this collection of different plants and we'll get to it but a lot of them would have been you know bought in from this people exploring different different worlds different different areas mm. around them bringing them back and not everything likes to grow in the same place so you've got rainforest trees you've got floor coverings all that so i think it would have been just absolutely incredible and i'm going to pop some photos in business and i'll get you guys to describe what you see Ooh, i'm liking what i'm seeing from the preview <laughs> you can describe it to the audience <laughs> Uh, the first image? Yeah, the first image or any of the images that stand out to you. Well, this is crazy. Is that the Tower of Babylon in the background? Is that what I'm witnessing? It could be. Yes. yes I, I believe it is. Very familiar. So I'm seeing a very intense multi-tiered temple, kind of like a pyramid, but like the whole step pyramid. Yeah. But it's columns instead of walls. Very large white columns. Lots of different foliage. Around this temple is, I guess, a lake or a river with boats and things. There's fountains. There's stairs with fancy people using umbrellas <laughs> and little ostrich fan things. Statues of what looks like a sphinx, sphinx maybe. Um, a bull with wings. Uh, palm trees, pines, flowers, shrubbery. I'm assuming fruit. Yeah. Is, uh, top right corner, it's kind of a small image. It kind of looks like a white wolf. <laughs> <laughs> like very opulent it's it, it's a lot of exoticness yeah. opulence opulent that's the word. and eclectic do you agree drew i completely agree with that that's that's a really good description of this there might be even camels on that upper tier you're right i think you're right yeah so i kind of when you hear hanging gardens you i kind of thought very vine like like i thought there was going to be maybe like an open area where they were growing like exotic vines and things, but not, not yeah. so much a case. It was more that tiered layered and maybe plants were growing down and hanging down into the next layer that you could exist in. Yeah. Yeah. Needless to say, they were considered an absolute marvel because of their beauty in writings, historic writings anyway. So the idea goes, and one of the most common attributations we have to these gardens is that they were built by the Neo-Babylonian king Nabrakas Deza too, uh, and so he ruled between sixteen, uh, sorry, six oh five and five sixty two, uh, before Common Era, so thousands of years ago. And the story goes that this king built it for his maiden wife because she missed all of the green hills and valleys of her hometown. And he had kind of married her, brought her to the, the, the center of Babylon to where he lived. And she was like longing for the greenery, for the pretty things. And so he built it for her. I love that. What a caring that husband. romantic? That's great. Totally. So this whole accounting, uh, like account of of why these were built and kind of that that law of it was attested to by the Babylonian priest Basaurus uh, in some writing from him in 290 BCE and the description was later quoted by some other writers down the lines uh, but the construction of the hanging gardens has also been attributed to the legendary queen Samaris and they were called the hanging gardens of Samaris like an alternative name in alternative writing. Mm-hmm. So what we see is that these hanging gardens or these magic magical gardens or you know this meeting ground kind of trickles down in like parallel stories from different times and this is where the confusion comes in because people aren't sure whether it's one of those kind of like folklore something might have existed yeah. long ago and then it's attributed to different people or maybe they both had amazing hanging gardens we're not quite sure. That's the dream. Yeah. Two gardens. Yeah. So this is where we kind of get into the the whole nitty gritty of was it real? 
and actually written about and passed down? Or was it this like fictional construct made by these authors to portray some meaning or, or something? There's documents from five different writers who all describe suspended guardians. So we've got it from different writers throughout different time periods. So that's a good sign um, that it's mentioned multiple times. There is, however, no Babylonian-specific texts that mention the gardens, and there's no definitive archaeological evidence found anywhere near where ancient Babylon was of these kind of descriptions of these ancient gardens. And so we could kind of interpret that to mean that they never existed and that maybe they were a metaphor or they were storytelling or there's an alternative kind of route is that they they very likely did exist and they were these writers were inspired from something or some tales of a real thing but the ruins of them could actually live under the river now so there's the Ephrates Ephrates river Um, and it's not safe to do any excavations excavations under the river or around the river. They very well could be lost below there. And this is not too crazy because we, if we go back to the library and the lighthouse of Alexandria, we know that the water levels have river, risen significantly. And if you go into that bay and you go scuba diving, you find ancient ruins from Egypt um, that are just unsafe to excavate or to remove. And so a very similar thing could have happened here many thousands of years ago wait the river was the euphrates i think Euph- euphrates euphrates, euphrates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah did i say it right the first i was like time. but sorry did, did they say why it's dangerous like you can't excavate or like you can't dive there i don't know why it's dangerous i think maybe because it's like if it's really below surface level there's lots of soot i don't know it didn't explicitly oh, yeah, say why that makes sense um but i'm also yeah, guessing okay. if it's an active river i'm not sure how big it is but also if it's actively used, Wrong. it could also be really dangerous to try do things. Yeah. Um, but this could change like with modern technology and the fact that we have really good radar and sonar equipment to try scan underwater yeah, yeah. now. They, they could potentially find things that could hint at different different past objects. Uh, so I know, I know. So that, cool. could be, that could be a very real possibility. So to sum it up, we have kind of three main theories of what these gardens were and where they were. So theory number one is that they were purely, this is really sad, purely made up, they were mythical, and the descriptions found in ancient Greek and Roman writings represented this romantic ideal of an eastern garden. I don't like that one. That one sucks. Okay. (laughs) That one's less fun. Number two, (laughs) that they did in fact exist in ancient Babylon, but were destroyed sometime around the first century. Um, And so there's no common writings about about where they were so they could have existed were destroyed um that's That's believable believable. or yeah yeah, it could even be that you know maybe parts of different ruins they haven't attributed it to other ruins yet you know because ruins of ruins it's really Mm -hmm. hard to tell what they were without really (laughs) yeah um obvious clues number three (laughs) so number three is that the legend refers to an already well-documented garden by uh, King uh, Sienna Cherub from 704 to 681 before Common Era, and it was built in his capital of Nirvana on the River Tigris. And so this is near the modern city of Mosul. So this was a garden that was from a different king that he definitely had very well-documented, um, and it also seemingly was like a magical a collection of different plants uh it goes at like the this this kind of final theory comes from an oxford scholar named stephanie stephanie daly um who has written heaps of different books on different possible mythological places and what the actual history and the actual location could be and she has one specifically around this mystery of the hanging gardens of babylon and all of the different places they could be or what they could mean if anyone is interested which i think is pretty cool so i think it that theory is super believable that maybe because we see this in history where there was one thing that might have happened or or something you know meaningful happened or was built but then is passed on through kind of like in different stories and you end up getting like an amalgamated thing that that didn't actually exist so Hmm. a game of telephone yeah yeah yeah, like a game of telephone which i feel like a lot of history is before we had full-on 
documentation because it was really hard yeah. to document I hope, things. I really hope it Me was too. real. <laughs> I mean, it's, feas- it's totally feasible, yeah. right? Like, Oh, for sure. Like, it's not a crazy thing. It's not, it wasn't anything like death defying that they had to build. It was just a really nice garden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we love a really nice garden. Yeah. So there's lots of art around what it might have looked like because a lot of, especially romantic painters, were inspired by this romance tale of it all. And from the art, we have like a breakdown of what plants might have existed from the region that it was in. We can assume from both the the written accounts and the art that there would have been olive trees, there would have been pear trees, fig, almonds, there would have been grapevines, date palms, and then there would have been imported really cool looking trees like cedars, myrths, willows, and, and ferns. So all of that would have kind of been mixed together and their different layers and their different little areas and it would have been home to uh animals as well both native and then introduced animal pets which i think it sounds like a magical place i really like the idea of of the gardens mm-hmm. it does anything with the willow especially that would definitely oh, give the hanging effect because sure. oh, yeah. Yeah, willows are beautiful i love that so that's that that's the maybe hanging gardens of babylon Maybe hanging, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Strong, maybe. I like that a lot. That's great. Well, I'll dream about it vividly. Yeah. <laughs> It'll exist in my dreams. <laughs> well, that was it. I think that was a magical adventure through some ancient inventions and possible inventions to the modern day bicycle, which really is magical in its own right, I think. It yeah, is. I was going to say Drew would agree. <laughs> So thank you so much for joining us. We love having you and we love learning all of these random fun facts and sharing them with everybody. If you would like to see all of the different images and visuals that go along with what we've talked about, you can follow us on Go Ask Alice Pod on Twitter or Go Ask Alice Podcast on Instagram. And if you really want to see special bonus posters, special audio edits, no ad edits, and just help support the show, you can come and support us on Patreon at Go Ask Alice Podcast. And we love all of our Patreons an insane amount we do (laughs) we love you patreon (laughs) we love you every single one individually (laughs) and as a whole Bye 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 Oh, I want yeah, I want to ride my bicycle. I was like, what's on, what's my toe on right now?